Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross, along with Luke Doris. This is podcast number 12 of Hurricane Season 2020 and number 50, Luke, in our series. Can you can you believe we, uh, we've we done 50? It's pretty amazing, eh? Yeah, it flew by. I, I've gone back and listened to some of the older ones, and it's amazing the amount of ground that we've gone through <laughs> over really three have. years. There's been a lot, so yeah. It's, it, it, here we are, well into our third season. Well, today we're going to talk with author Greg Funderburg, who has a new book that just came out called The Morning Wave, a novel of the great storm. Morning as in expressing grief, like M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, and the great storm as in the Galveston hurricane of 1900. What makes this book special and maybe unique as far as I know is that it's a historical novel. It's based on real events and real people who lived and suffered through the epic hurricane, one of the epic hurricanes of all time that killed six to 12,000 people when it swept the Gulf of Mexico over Galveston Island in Texas, of course. That was 120 years ago last night, late on September 8th, 1900. Very different kind of hurricane book, and we'll talk to the author here in just a few minutes. We're recording this podcast on Wednesday, September 9th, 2020. If you're listening at some point in the future, you've got to tune into Local 10 in South Florida for Local 10 News, or of course, Local10.com, where you can always watch Local 10 News live and free if for some reason you can't watch TV, or maybe you don't even have TV anymore. Anyway, it's all on Local10.com. And you can download the Max Tracker Hurricane app or the Local 10 Weather app for current information. All right, uh, Luke, in the tropics right now, we're using up names like crazy, mm-hmm. but uh, thankfully for now, the storms of any consequence are staying on the other uh, side of the Atlantic. But let's talk just for one second about this this uh, it's technically an inverted trough that the Hurricane Center keeps hanging into off of the Carolinas, uh, and they've got 30% on it for, for development. It sure doesn't look like much on the uh, satellite, but of course, it only has to be a depression to meet their, their uh, qualifications. But it's kind of heading for this big area of disturbed weather all up and down the coast, right? That it's been causing the rain uh, here. So what's been going on with the this now trough of previously upper low that's causing this band of, of uh, rain, you know, from South Florida on north? Well, there's this couple things. One is with the disturbance that's near Bermuda, the one that could be heading toward the Carolina coast, uh, that is... It's running into dry air at the moment, and there's a mid-level feature to its south, and this mid-level feature has all kinds of moisture with it, and we'll get into that one this weekend. So these two are kind of interconnected. What we're getting out ahead of that is this different disturbance, this upper-level surge that has moved through over the past couple of days. It's already essentially been on top of South Florida, and that's why we've had quite a bit of rain here lately. Uh, and as I look out my window today, today's been the wettest day so far, which has been sort nice. Sort of unexpectedly, right? <laughs> sort of. You know, it was it was weird, Brian, because you looked at it on paper and for the South Florida local forecast, you had a surface feature in this big trough of low pressure. You had incredible moisture and you had an upper level low to help, you know, bring you a lot of rain. Right. And, and, and uh, the, the cool air aloft, the sure. temperatures were lower aloft. Right. So you go down your checklist and you're like, we should have a lot of rain. And I was forecasting a lot of rain here over the past couple of days. And we had spots that got some, but it didn't quite 
bring what you would, what I would have expected as far as coverage. You would, ex- I would have expected more coverage of rain, more widespread rain, longer lived rain. It didn't really do that until today, and not exactly sure what's going on there. Maybe something at the low levels that didn't. Well, it needs some. You need to have all those ingredients plus some triggering event, right? You need something. You need sea breeze convergence, or you need something to to get things going because because the lift was there if you had something to get them going you would have thought there i mean it doesn't take much to get that make that happen here in this climate but yeah. um yeah it was surprising i thought there would be more as well well on the other side of uh, the atlantic Paulette and renee seem to want to turn north though uh, is that a hundred percent that Paulette's going to turn to the north? Well, Renee, yes, but Paulette is the question, right? I mean, yeah, it's turning north. The question is to what degree. It's got about as big of a model spread as you'll see uh, on All those area. over there do. Well, you know, th- that one and then the next one. Yeah. Right? The, the next one is is a thousand miles between the various uh, forecasts. That, that's the disturbance that's going to come off Africa about uh, tomorrow. Looks like there's some kind of atmospheric fork in the road where it's either going to miss the opportunity to go north or and and kind of continue to the west in the general direction of the islands, or it's going to kind of follow Renee and Paulette north. And I suspect that has something to do with how strong Renee and Paulette are. If Renee and Paulette are pretty strong, then they're going to kind of just, just blow away the high pressure system to the north and create a big alleyway. If they don't really get real strong, then it seems to me that 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 raises more questions on whether the high will be strong enough to hold this potential sally, the next system coming off of Africa south. Yeah. And if you were looking at some of the I was looking at it last night, I haven't looked at it recently, and this will bounce around a whole lot. Uh, but some of the models were trying to split this next wave, the one that hasn't formed, it's still over Africa, into two different yes, storms. I saw that. And one yes. goes north, yeah. and then yeah. one goes west, and then you get both scenarios. So it's, yeah. who knows at this point what that one will do. But the concern, or I guess the uh, heightened awareness around it, is the fact that it's probably going to be further south once it gets off of Africa mm-hmm. than the last two. And that just could put it in a region where it may want to track a little bit further uh, west rather than ke- if it misses that hook in the road and goes and doesn't go north and it could track for the west and thus maybe down the line be a bigger impact to land so yeah but it's another one that is at this moment unforecastable so, sure. so all we can do is draw arrows in two wildly different directions and and uh, and we'll see what happens there anyway it's a, it's several days from the fork in the road anyway three or four days, maybe something like that. And then there are other systems over Africa. You look at the African satellite from the Mediosat, the European satellite that looks down on Africa, and you can see them kind of lined up in a little parade there. That doesn't mean they're all going to come off. doesn't mean the, the flow will maintain itself because we're getting, you know, here we are approaching the middle of September. So we're still in the Cape Verde season, uh, I, I think, well into it, but it's usually over pretty much by the end of September. So sometimes it starts to wane as we, you know, get here soon. So when you're looking two or three disturbances down the road, um, on average, the pattern starts to change somewhat. Yeah, by the time we get to October, we look more toward the what Western Caribbean, Gulf of Mexico, Western Atlantic is more of the 
favorable formation zone. But what makes the Cabo Verde or Cape Verde, you hear both. I don't know which one's the... Well, you know, I mean, it was... So Cape Verde is, was the name in English of the Cape in Florida. It's in Dakar, Florida, in Africa. It's in Dakar, Africa. That's the name of the Cape. And then the islands that are well offshore were the Cape Verde Islands, right? Um, related to that Cape. Well, then the Cape Verde Islands wanted to assert their their difference, their own independence, essentially. I mean, they were an independent entity, Portuguese-related entity, but they have their own government there. And uh, so they changed it to Cabo Verde, the, the Portuguese word. So okay. the Cabo Verde Islands. So, But I think we still say Cape Verde season being English speakers, I think. But we try and, you know, I try and say anyway, Cabo Verde islands that's the the name of the country so what are we to say that they shouldn't call their country what they want to sure and they just took uh you know we had renee that passed right over the top of them basically and brought them some bad weather as a what a strong tropical storm or no that wasn't even that strong but a tropical storm but what what makes you know when you say that term those storms interesting and the season of the cabo verde hurricanes Mm -hmm. is it that they have so much time to come across the atlantic and time allows them to grow stronger and stronger and get larger and like irma irma was one of these types of storms so if we my question to you is if this season comes to an end you know let's say september route rolls out and we're dropping down with the cabo verde season That doesn't necessarily mean that you can't still get strong storms on the west side of the Atlantic. We've seen that happen many times. But is the likelihood lower? Well, the likelihood is that they're not as big. That's not 100% either. Wilma really, really peaked on the west side. It peaked in the Caribbean, actually. And it ended up being a, a large circulation when it got to South Florida. So it happens, but but Wilma hung around for days and days and days and days. And so usually it takes an eyewall replacement cycle for storms to grow bigger and spread their winds out from the center, farther and farther out from the center. So if you're going to get multiple eyewall replacement cycles, that usually takes time. And it's why storms are generally bigger and stronger in the Pacific. There's just more ocean to maneuver in before they run into land, which is really the inhibiting factor uh, in the Atlantic. So yes, there's more runway if the storm forms out in the Atlantic. But in 2005, which of course was the busiest hurricane season we've ever seen with 28 named storms, uh, you you know, almost everything formed on the west side. All the big storms formed on the west side of the uh, Atlantic, including Katrina, formed right off the Bahamas here. So it's not 100%, but just generally, the strongest storms generally come from disturbances from that direction. And then many of the big, giant storms, the Hugos and Irmas and uh, those kind of storms actually develop there east of of the island somewhere between yeah. the Caribbean islands and Africa. Hey, while you're talking about 2005, what do you make of, you know, we have we've passed 2005 as far as record pace in the number of storms to the date. We have more storms now at this time than we did in 2005, which was an unbelievable year. Um, But the amount of energy that the storms have produced as a whole is not that much higher than average. So what do you make of this? Yeah, so we had, well, remember the first six storms were non-tropical systems that happened to get over the Gulf Stream and, and become tropical enough to get names. And some of them, I mean, there were 
uh, one or two of them were in the hours in lifetime, right? Yeah. So, so you get a name, but you don't get really any energy generated. So, so a couple of things there. You know, the ocean is warmer. There, there's a lot uh, warmer water off the northeast coast, for example. Isaias, you know, could work with that, and and it happened to track up the Gulf Stream. And with the ocean being a little bit warmer, maybe more non-tropical systems will get named into the future. But generally, those systems that start non-tropical early in the year, and whether they get a name or not, they generally don't become very strong. Therefore, they generally don't generate much energy. 2005 was completely different. You know, in July, uh, we had uh, Dennis and Emily, uh, in June and July, Dennis and Emily, um, both, you know, Emily was a Category 5 yeah. in the, the Caribbean. So we had these you know, regular tropically generated systems that were serious storms. So very, very different kind of hurricane season. I mean, thankfully, thankfully, you know, this has not been a 2005 type year, even though obviously Laura was a, uh, a significant and uh, tragic storm for for Louisiana. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's it. And then, you know, then we run into the thing here. We're up to the R's. We're almost certainly going to get an S- uh, an S out of a Sally out of out of what's over there about Africa and probably get at least a T. I think out of that group there, we'll probably get to Teddy. Then we have two left. Um, Vicky and Wilfred, I think, are the two left. And then we go to the Greek alphabet like in 2005. And then, you know, we run into the problem since we're early here. I mean, let's say we get to the Greek alphabet in October in early October, where you can easily have a strong storm. And then you get to the problem, how do you retire a letter in the Greek alphabet? It's been around for 3,500 years. It's kind of tough to say, okay, no more alpha. Yeah, uh, well, I guess yeah. the alternative yeah. is, because that is a problem, and it could easily happen. You could have an alternative set of names, could you not, and start yeah, back so over to me, at that's the, that's the right uh, plan. James Franklin at the Hurricane Center proposed this back in, in 2005, uh, 2005 or 2006. I agreed with that. But then they looked at it at the WMO, the World Meteorological Organization Committee, uh, that, that uh, kind of runs all these mechanical things. The Hurricane Center doesn't make the names. The WMO Committee for this part of the world makes the names. Yeah. And they looked at it and decided uh, not to. Maybe they thought it wasn't going to happen again. I don't know. And we'll see. We'll see. I mean, we don't know that it's going to happen this year, but it certainly could. So, all right, let's meet author Greg Funderburg and talk about the great 1900 Galveston hurricane, one of the most important historical hurricanes in U.S. history. Hi, Greg. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. So you have such an interesting background, history major, lawyer, and now a pastor at the South Main Baptist Church in Houston, an institution in that city. I can see how your history background and ministering to people in times of grief came together in this story, though I'm not so sure about the lawyering. <laughs> uh, tell us what brought you to write a book about the 1900 hurricane as your first book. Yeah, well... I, I've always, it's always been in my consciousness in some sense, you know, living in Houston and being so close to Galveston. We used to go down to Galveston for family vacations. And on one of them in particular, uh, a storm blew up. We were just in a little motel uh, right off the seawall. And it was so 
it was so powerful and it wasn't even a hurricane. It was just a, a bad storm. But I remember going out with my brother and just being hit by, you know, a sheet of rain and powerful wind. Um, and then a couple years later, my dad gave me a book or talked about a book. And then I looked up the book and, and read it called A Weekend in September, uh, which is uh, by John Edward Weems about the, the Galveston hurricane. And really, I don't know. So I guess it's always been inside me. And then when I started to write, I thought this was a really compelling story. Well, so uh, and also you live in Houston, so you have some experience with hurricanes and Harvey and Nike and and all of that. Right. You've been in Houston a long time. Yeah, definitely. I remember, um, you know, uh, Alicia mm -hmm. um, and and then, you know, yeah, yeah just 1983 Hurricane Alicia. Right. right. I was in, in high school for that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you remember that when you're kind of growing and sort of coming of age. Uh, and, you know, that was a that was a mess. Um, and then certainly, you know, Rita coming right after um, right after Katrina. Um, and then Ike was especially um, uh, powerful and memorable. Uh, everybody trying to get out of town. My wife worked for um, uh, worked for uh, an investment bank, and it was about to go under that weekend too. If you'll remember, uh, that was sort of when you know the blow up with the financial system was occurring. So it was a it was quite quite a weekend. And then of course Harvey too um, was you know just catastrophic. Right. Yeah, you started with the story about when you were a kid. It's amazing how these weather events, when you're young, they stick with you. A lot of times it changes people's course of life. It did, you know, we talked to any meteorologist and most of them will have a story about, well, I was this age and this storm happened and it just it hangs with you and weather gets in people's, in people's blood. What makes your story interesting and different is that it follows characters through this historical event. So it's got, you know, people as the core rather than an unfurling of this happened and then this happened. And it, that's what makes it humanized. Do you prepare to write a novel differently than you would a straight up history story? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's, um, you know, there's certainly emotional content in when you're writing history or you're recounting history. But then when you get into the, the drama of a narrative of a you know, human story, um, yeah, there's more emotion that comes out. Um, and Brian mentioned sort of my my path of the you know legal work and lawyer work was kind of really in the you know of the mind and sort of the pastoral work now is is sort of of the heart. So there's sort of a marriage between those two when you're writing, um, especially especially historical fiction. I think it's sort of a marriage of both. Yeah, as you go through the story, you really do feel. Uh, connected to the characters in it. And how detailed were the original stories and interviews with the people that you wrote about? Was there enough information that you felt like you knew them? Yeah, I think so. Um, first of all, I guess in, in doing all the research, there's, you know, there's amazing history um, and, you know, voices that you hear from the storm. Some one of the book is even called uh, research uh, books that I looked into was called Voices of the Storm. And you really do hear the people speaking. There are all such wonderful writers around the turn of the century. And so that's pretty remarkable. And you do, you feel like you're, you're beginning to know them. And then when you, when you write about them, you do begin to fictionalize them, you know, what they look like and maybe what their personality was, um, especially with these three boys that are sort of the protagonist of, of, of my book. Yeah. Your book centers around this tragic story of the St. Mary's orphan asylum, which sat right by the Gulf of Mexico in, in Galveston, which, I suppose was supposed to be a healthier location for 
yellow fever reasons, right? I mean, uh, down right. around the turn of the 20th century, yellow fever was a big issue here in Miami and and in all southern cities and in some northern cities, uh, as a matter of fact. Was it your connection to the church that drew you to that story or just the depth of the tragedy uh, of the story of that orphanage? I think it was the depth of the of the of the tragedy and just it's so poignant and so heartbreaking because I really started to write the this story uh, before I was a minister. I became a minister about eight years ago. Um, and so this was already sort of, you know, bouncing around in my head even before that. Um, but it is it's just. You know, if you start looking like, okay, what's the most catastrophic thing that could happen? And then what's the most sort of poignant story within that catastrophe? It points you right out there on the beach to the to the St. Mary's uh, orphanage. Yeah, so tell us a, a little bit of that story. I don't want you to recount the book here, but, but uh, for folks that don't know the story of the orphanage and, and uh, kind of what happened there and how you ended up with your three protagonists. Yeah, well, you're exactly right. They moved out about 20 years before from the city center. And Galveston was, you know, a pretty, pretty decent sized um, city, um, has had 38,000 people when the when the storm struck. Um, but that's why they moved out on the beach. It was it was uh, healthier with the, the ocean breeze. But it did obviously make them uh, extremely vulnerable to, to storms like this. And there were uh, 93 kids there from ages two to about 18. Uh, most of them sort of in the eight, nine, 10 uh, uh, range. And 10 sisters um, of the incarnate word um, were there, were um, at the head of this uh, orphanage out there and one handyman as well, who's a character in the book. And, um, and the, the, Storm came in and they did their best um, to, to, to brave it. Um, even ended up the uh, nuns tied the kids um, to them um, during the storm with laundry line, uh, which again makes it just extra poignant. They just did everything they could to save these kids. And they did not in the end, except for three got away in most amazing uh, sorts of ways, right? That's exactly right. Just mm -hmm. these three um, survived. Um, and, and, and that was sort of the, the drive of the story, too. You could imagine that, that um, these three children would want to tell the story of what happened and the sacrifice and the bravery, bravery that happened um, overnight. And so that sort of pushes the dramatic narrative that the main character, Will Murney, wants to remember the story for the rest of his life. He wants to um, tell, um, you know, the city and uh, the, the order um, back in Galveston about what about what happened. So it's really a journey um, from the night of the storm in, into the city. You know, Brian, people like Brian and I, we are Greg, rather, Brian and I, we we study a lot of storms and something odd happens as time passes. And you look back at a, a storm like I'm familiar with the Galveston hurricane, but you look at it and you say, oh, that was a bad storm. It was a really bad storm. You look at the numbers of the fatalities. But what you have done in your book has reminded us and reminded me what these people, these were real people. This isn't just, a, you know, a look back at the statistics, but you look at it and you say, now I'm in a zone where I understand how heart-wrenching and the sorrow that went with everything in this storm, rather than just looking at it as a historical event. Now it's humanized in me, and, and your book really does do that. So something else that it does is it brings Galveston, the city, in 1900 to life. 
tell us about the city. What was it like at the time and why was it in an important place? Yeah, it was it was kind of a, you know, a wild and woolly city there. Like I said, there are about 38,000 people. Um, it was, you know, a star right on the Gulf Coast was kind of battling it out with New Orleans um, for who would be on top. Um, lots of commercial, you know, trading um, ships coming in every day. Um, it sort of had a, an interesting history, too, had a, a red light district, had it had concert halls, three concert halls, um, lots of lots of schools, um, just a lot going on. In fact, was battling Houston as well um, for being sort of the, the commercial center of Texas. The Strand, which is a street that's still still there in Galveston, um, was thought to be sort of the Wall Street of the of the Southwest back then. So it was it was on the rise. In fact, they'd had a ten percent. Um, population increase um, from 1890 to 1900. There's some, uh, you know, census data that had just come out right before the storm. And so they were really thinking they were poised um, at the beginning of a new century um, to really uh, be, um, you know, a, a, a really large and central and uh, powerful city uh, in, in Texas. It's interesting to hear you say that. I've been to Galveston I went not all that long ago, and I went I actually went to the Boulevard Peninsula and uh, saw all the, you know, a lot of damage from Ike that was still there yeah. at the time, this several years ago. But I have good friends that lived on the Boulevard Peninsula and uh, lost their home and and all of that. But it's just interesting to, you know, be in Galveston, which is a fine city, but to compare it to Houston or New Orleans or think that that was in rival is, is a fascinating thought. Why would they put? a city with all these rich residents and big houses in such a vulnerable place? Wasn't it obvious even back then that they could have yeah. a big hurricane there? Well, I mean, you know, we still do that, you know, in some sense, people, you know, even, even after Ike, even after um, Harvey, you know, more um, beach homes go up on Galveston. I'm sure it's the same in, in, in Miami. And we just, I don't know what we do. We're just, I think we, it, as a part of this story and a part of human nature, I mean, hubris, uh, it's, it's, it's sort of always there in, in human nature and in history um, as well. So we, you know, we keep doing that. Um, there's a really interesting new book out by, uh, he's a Rice professor named Steven Kleinberg. That he, He's written a book called Prophetic City, and it's about Houston's rise and how Houston, you know, dug the ship channel and really kind of overcame um, Galveston. Um, as uh, as sort of the, the top city there on the on the coast with reference to um, you know the economy, um, but 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 you know the 1900 storm really Galveston came back, but obviously it never was the same. And it wasn't that long before. I mean, in 1896, the Indianola, which was a port down just down the coast, right, was destroyed and abandoned after that. I mean, it was creamed by giant hurricanes in 1875, and then again in 1886 and that was it for Indianola. It doesn't seem like that much of a leap <laughs> to imagine that the same thing could happen in Galveston, right? So, I mean, was do you have any theory about why they couldn't, you know, it was only 11 years. This is not yeah. a long time, right? The, the why they they weren't able to just look to their neighbor and say, "Gee, maybe we ought to think hard about this." Uh, I mean, you're right. It was a boomtown, right? And boomtowns have their own sort of uh, own momentum 
Miami. The same thing happened in Miami. Miami in 1925-26 was the boomtown of all boomtowns. And then in September of 1926, the Great Miami Hurricane came and began the Depression. Other things that happened earlier in 1926 to kind of start it. But, but I mean, is it, was it that was it as simple as that that it was a boomtown that just kind of clouded people's thinking? Do you think? Yeah, I, I think it might be a couple of things. And, and of course, um, you know, a very popular best-selling book, Isaac's Storm by Eric Larson, um, kind of deals with that a little bit. And he talks about Isaac Klein, the meteorologist there in, at the Galveston station, and uh, had, gave a speech, I think, in 1891 that was reported in the Galveston News mm -hmm. and how he, he, I think he calls it an absurd delusion. And he said it was an absurd delusion for to think that a hurricane could hit the coast of Texas because, you know, since Indianola, not much had occurred. And, but yet, as you said, I mean, Indianola was wiped off, wiped off the map. Yeah. Um, it, wasn't, so, it wasn't a little thing that happened, right? It wasn't a little thing. And yeah, so, right. so I think, again, it's, it's, it's hubris. And I think there was also something going around around the turn of the century where um, people had really, um, uh, really, you know, leaning in with their hearts and their minds to, to the idea of science and being able to control um, the, the weather and control human nature and control, you know, genetics even um, at that time. And, um, and it's just, you know, it's just hubris. There was an article in the Houston Chronicle, um, or I guess KPRC News in Houston uh, channel, uh, and uh, talked about how Houston's still not prepared um, for, uh, for, for a hurricane. Mm -hmm. And we've done a lot of work um, with, you know, flood control, but, um, no, there's you a know, lot of work to do in Houston to make Houston ready for a, a, yeah, a hurricane Harvey about, or a Harvey type thing, let alone a, a big hurricane for sure. Yeah. They said about $8 billion worth of, of work um, would be required to kind of make it uh, more, if not impregnable. I hate to right. use that word because then we fall into the same hubris as, as, uh, as they did back then. But yeah, you introduced, you just talked about Isaac Klein as a famous and infamous meteorologist who ran the U.S. Weather Bureau office in Galveston at the time, but he's not a major character in your story. Did you make a decision to give him a minor role for any particular reason? I mean, he was one of the best known people in the city at the time, right? Yeah, I think Eric Larson had already told that story. And so um, and so as I had the boys, you know, walking through town, I, I didn't want to leave, you know, leave him out completely. But um, it is it's just kind of a nod because I just really thought that story had been told and told so brilliantly, you know, that um, there there you know, there were there were other stories to tell. And that's what's kind of interesting about the book, too, as I was kind of preparing to, you know, for this podcast and other things that, that I'm doing uh, with reference to the book have, have has went over my old research. And it was amazing where I, I just began to realize, you know, I didn't come up with any of this, really. It's all in the history textbooks. And then you, you humanize it with, with uh, particular characters. But just about every single scene in the book came right out of, you know, one of the history books uh, that recounts what happened. So in your research, um, referring to Eric Larson's uh, famous book, uh, Isaac Storm, do you, did you find information that either agrees or disagrees with, with Larson's uh, contention that, that Klein really likely overstated his 
warning to people that the bad storm was coming and the controversy that uh, has sort of surrounded that ever since, although he seemed to, you know, he came out of it okay, and he actually went on to lead a, a stellar life as an important meteorologist in the early part of the 20th century. He went or went to uh, New Orleans and became the head of the New Orleans uh, Weather Bureau. But, so did you find uh, anything one way or the other as you were researching the material uh, from that storm? Um, I, I, I didn't. I think what's interesting in, in uh, Larson's book is that, um, you know, he recounts um, Isaac Klein, Dr. Klein saying, you know, I went out to the beach and I warned people and I saved 6,000 people. And then he has a sentence, Larson has a sentence right after that saying, um, you know, essentially my review of the history over at the Rosenberg Library and all of the texts and all of the letters, um, does, his claims do not mesh with the historical record. Mm -hmm. And I didn't find anything else like that either. I didn't see any any um, writings of anybody or any recounting of what happened, and, and that that um, Isaac Klein, you know, came across their their path. But you know, you just never know. You don't know whether that would even be in somebody's um, recollections anyway. So it's it's. It, I think it, there is a part of it that, that will always remain a mystery. Uh, but I think Larson did a pretty good job on sort of giving you his personality and that maybe his personality fit with, um, you know, thinking that this couldn't happen. Well, and the idea just, of hubris, I mean, that yeah. fit, that fit his personality. Exactly. Yeah. You, you yeah. use the and right just, word. Yes. Yeah. And just that he sort of, you know, doubled down on that and said this, you know, this just can't happen. And sure enough, it was happening. Yeah. What was the process of learning about all the people you talk about in the book, like the mechanical process of keeping all the characters and personalities straight? Yeah, I think it was um, a matter of just reading everything you could get your hands on um, in terms of, of books that recount uh, particular histories and what someone's circumstance um, was on um, that day and then that night and then the next day. And so what I would do was, as I would read all of this, I would sort of try to put it in chronological order. Like I might find one letter from somebody that's recounting their day. Um, and it seems like, okay, this happened at six o'clock. This happened at seven o'clock. This happened at eight o'clock. And then you take another book and it, you find somebody else that had some experience and then try to kind of put them together sort of, you know, like a running clock um, of what they would have experienced at this time of day, at this time of day, the next day, the next day. Um, and then just try to put it all together. Um, and that's a lot of the process of, of, of writing history, I'm sure, or, or his, uh, historic um, fiction even, is just, you know, keep, keep your seat in the chair and just keep, you know, putting it together, putting it together. And hopefully then the story emerges and you kind of find your voice um, in the midst of it. Yeah, it seems a daunting task. I'm sure that that's quite a puzzle to put together, but you really do get a sense of the events as the uh, hurricane unfolds before, during, and after. So it, it really does walk you through that. Was everybody that we meet in your character real or only the major characters? Um, just about everybody was real. I mean, sometimes I would, um, I would, you know, change a name. For instance, there's one orphan, uh, one, one youngster that they, that they run into, and his name is Frank Kalk. 
but I already had a character named Frank, Frank Madeira, who is a real person. And so I changed Frank's name to Sam or, you know, so I make some little changes just sort of that I hope, you know, just sort of poetic license and that you're allowed to do when you're doing um, historic fiction rather than history. But just about, like I said, every single character um, you know, I could f go back and find a letter from a survivor that describes the event that happened um, that is in the book. So um, it is, it is uh, you know, people have written exhaustively about this hurricane, um, but there hadn't been a whole lot of, of um, you know, fictional drama around it. And so um, and so I, I kind of took that as a challenge. Yeah, I, I'm not aware of any, uh, as a matter of fact. So when you write a book like this, I imagine you develop kind of a feel for the people and the place, almost like you were actually there. Is that true? And, and can you imagine yourself in one of those churches that was still functioning after the storm, you know, ministering to the survivors? Yeah, I, I, I can. Um, and it's it's interesting that um, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, I went back to Galveston to see if, you know, to talk to some some people about maybe um, um, stocking the book in their, you know, gift shop of a hotel or a museum. And man, as soon as I went over the causeway, and certainly when you get down to the seawall, it does, it, it all comes back to you. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the, the orphanage is out there. Um, uh, the, the orphanage site is right across from where a Walmart is now. And so you're standing, you know, at the seawall um, with a Walmart behind you, but you're looking out and saying, you know, this happened, um, you know, 120 years ago to the date um, of yesterday. Um, but yeah, you, so um, you do. And then as far as, you know, the aftermath and um, being, being a minister, um, yeah, I, I've kind of experienced that even um, after after Harvey, um, you know, our church tried to respond to uh, to needs. Uh, we're trying to do that, you know, right now after Laura, even though it's not quite as close. Uh, but, you know, one story in particular after Harvey, um, I went down to the um, NRG Convention Center right by the, the football stadium where um, all of the recovery efforts were taking place. And and I waited for a while to, you know, volunteer and to help and was kind of ushered into a, a big giant room, probably the biggest room they have in the convention center. People just started bringing in, you know, clothes and um, other supplies. And uh, pretty soon there's a big mountain of, of clothes just in the center of the room. And you're going, man, I don't, you know, how are we ever going to just sort all this stuff out? But more volunteers came and more volunteers came and pretty soon you know, people were sorting it all out and, and, you know, and you just kind of begin to sense over a period of hours, um, sort of an order begin at the very edges to begin to emerge mm -hmm. from chaos. And so I think that's what, you know, what, what that would have been uh, back then as well, but even, you know, yeah, multiplied by, by thousands. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah it, it becomes a lot different when you're sorting clothes is one thing, but when you're, you know, burning bodies. It's, yeah. it's a whole different thing. Yeah. And that's what they do there. Greg, what happened to the people whose story you told? Did they stay in Galveston or get out as soon as they could? Yeah, there's, um, there was a, a definitely an exodus. I think they said um, eight or 10,000 people left the city right after, but it's sort of, uh, you know, the statistics are a little bit, um, a little bit blurry because they don't even know really how many people died. The estimates are six to 8,000. Um, but a lot of people left. 
Um, these um, three boys, uh, in particular, um, the story of, of one of the boys who ended up being adopted that's in the in the book, it really happened. It's really kind of a remarkable story, but one uh, got sent to, to, to Kansas. Um, uh, another one, um, Frank, um, there's a Houston Chronicle article about him from 1937. And so he must have been about 50 years old when he wrote this, uh, when he was the subject of this article. And uh, he was, I think he was still, he had been, he was in World War One. then he lived in San Francisco, and then I think he moved back to, to Texas, if I recall. Um, and then Will, the main character, ended up in Springfield, Missouri, uh, working for the railroad. And some of his kids actually came down for the, uh, the when the memorial sign about the the orphanage was put up on the seawall in 1900, in a 2000, 100 years uh, anniversary of the storm. His family came down in a, in, and was at that, uh, were at that, uh, that memorialization, which is kind of cool. Yeah, well, that's amazing. So after the, the big hurricane, the city fathers not only built a seawall, which they had talked about before and never did, but they also raised the, the yeah. a, a big part of the city, which is one of the most unbelievable public works projects that uh, if you have seen the book on that there's a great book that came out a picture book about that, that process it was uh, stunning and it saved the city when another super big hurricane came along in 1915 but you talked about about Houston kind of taking over was it related to the hurricanes that that allowed Houston to take over or was it you know just kind of Houston smarts to build the ship channel and and allow, you know, which really allowed the ships to come into Galveston Bay and uh, farther north in Galveston and uh, Galveston Bay and when they built the refineries all up uh, up by the ship channel. Uh, and I guess you couldn't really have refineries as easily in, in yeah. Galveston as you can up farther inland. Uh, so I, I guess the, the question is, you know, did the hurricanes facilitate that in your mind or was it was it really just because growth did that and Houston was a better place to grow? Um, I think it was the hurricane. I think at least the hurricane can be said to have offered that offering, um, that, that opportunity. Um, and then Houston did, you know, Houston took advantage of it by, um, you know, doing the, the infrastructure work um, to, to be required. But I mean, you know, I've got friends that um, have moved down to Houston, people I work with, and they go, why did they build a city here? <laughs> I mean, even Houston is is yes, kind it of is a, in a terrible place. Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah for so a city that size, I mean, it's, it might be manageable if it were yeah. a third that size or fourth yeah. that size. But yes, and, and I, lo I love Houston, and mm -hmm. I love how eclectic it is, mm -hmm. and how interesting it is, and how diverse it is. But it is a strange place to have, to have built a uh, you know such a such a big city. Mm -hmm. Do you see another book in your future, Greg? I, I sure hope so. Um, I'm I'm actually I'm writing one right now. I've um, I've been for our church. I've been writing every week um, some encouragements, you know, kind of essays to encourage folks that are going through the pandemic and all the social isolation. And I just 
um, I, I did a submission on it to a, to a publisher and it was accepted. So I'm working on putting that together right now. But it's not, you know, it's not fiction. It's just a series of, of um, you know, encouragements for people that are going through uh, difficult times, not just the pandemic, but I hope they hang on to it in the future for other trials that we face. Uh, but I really do would, would like to write some more some more fiction. In fact, this book, um, you know, I've mercilessly slashed a lot of um, material uh, to make it stronger and tighter. Um, and, you know, I might even be able to pick some things off the, the, the editing floor and turning, turn them into a, to another book. This book, in fact, I, I had a, a whole section at the beginning that was sort of a, a flashback uh, from the, you know, 1970s uh, that, that allowed it to flash back to 1900. So, yeah, I really enjoy writing. It, it, it's something that feeds my soul. And, um, and I hope it, you know, I hope it makes a difference to people as well, especially, as I say, as a pastoral care minister, there's something about overcoming grief and sorrow and finding hope. Yes, you could uh, feel the passion you have for those people and what they went through in your book. Thanks very much, Greg. It's a very special book and uh, congratulations on it. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And it, uh, it comes out September 29th. And I guess you can get it just about anywhere books are available. But thank you very much, Luke. And thank you, Brian. The book is The Morning Wave, the novel of the great storm. And uh, as you heard, it's going to be out at the end of the month. Get it. I know you'll enjoy it. So here's a quiz for you, Luke. What are the five most epic, historic U.S. hurricanes. I mean, that's obviously a, a vague term, but in other words, not modern storms, you know, not Katrina and, and so forth. So looking back, so obviously the 1900 Galveston storm uh, as being the deadliest U.S. natural disaster ever, the 1935 Key storm, the 1926 Great Miami hurricane, probably the 1928 Okeechobee hurricane being the second deadliest storm. All right, that's four. Um, the question is, what's number five? Mm. Well, you threw a curveball at me because <laughs> you said not modern, and I was well. Just... If you if you chose modern, what what do you do? You put Katrina in there, for example, because Katrina wasn't, you know, I mean, it was a bad hurricane in Mississippi, but the the New Orleans disaster was really an engineering disaster. If the walls had been built right, they would have held back you know, the weakened version of Katrina. Um, I mean, I, I, if I had to choose between Katrina as just, just hurricane disaster, if you really do allow that the New Orleans disaster was not a hurricane disaster, but an engineering disaster. So you focus on what the hurricane did. Uh, I don't know. I, I think I might be inclined to choose Camille over Katrina in the Mississippi part of the storm. Yeah. Or even Andrew, if you take it by that, mm -hmm. but, but yeah. you know, you can make a similar argument for the Okeechobee hurricane because that was a really poorly built wall that failed. And that's a big part of the reason why so many people died with that hurricane. But yeah, the difference is though, that in the Okeechobee situation, nothing, it was never going to stop the water. It wasn't built to stop the water in the in the New Orleans situation, the flood walls were built to stand. <laughs> they weren't built, built to fail, right? They, they, and there was an engineering thing about the way they mounted those flood walls. Now, they weren't anything like the current flood walls but they, and, and the levee system they have today. But still, you know, the water would just have come over the top if those walls had stood. They would have had some water in the city, but as soon as the water started going back down, it would have quit coming into the city where... 
whereas it was, of course, it just came and came and came and came and came and, and there was no stopping it. Yeah. Well, I see your point, but I still would have thought Katrina just because the storm happened. It had impacts if the storm right. didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Well, no, it's fair. It's totally fair. I agree. It's a hundred and twenty five billion dollar storm, 1800 deaths. I mean, just wrecked parts of the city that to this, you know, they're still not uh, back to normal or have anything in parts of the city. You take Katrina out of the picture and. Uh, how far back are we going? Because you mentioned Camille. I touched on Andrew. Are those? Do you consider those in the modern bin and not? Well, part maybe of this not. Question? Maybe not Camille. Okay. Um, so you have, you know, there. I think you really have to go way back. You have these, this whole set of storms. You have the Indianola hurricanes, which uh, we talked with the uh, with Greg Funderburk about that. Indianola was a town south of Texas that had two hurricanes in 11 years and wiped it out completely yeah. and never came back. And it was a thriving port town. You know, it's a it's a missing town on the on the Gulf Coast. You have the Sea Islands hurricane. And, that's in, yeah, that's that what I was going to say. The yeah. Last so the Sea Islands hurricane. I mean, you know, you have the 1938 hurricane that that was a month. You know, so that, my point is it's almost rhetoric because there is no way to define it if you're just talking about epic old hurricanes because there were a lot of them and uh but it is an interesting question i think be interesting to see if any viewers have ideas yeah absolutely or listeners have ideas all right next week we're going to talk with jamie rome who runs the storm surge unit at the national hurricane center we'll talk about forecasting hurricane laura and the challenges and the uneven coastline there and how difficult uh it is to communicate storm surge forecasts when it's not at all uniform along the coast. And of course, there was that opening there that would have taken the water up to Lake Charles if the storm had been just a little bit farther uh, to the west. So we'll talk with Jamie Rome from the Hurricane Center about that next week. So until then, uh, keep an eye on the tropics this week. Let's see what happens with these systems over Africa. For Luke Doris, I'm Brian Norcross. Have a good week, everybody. Be well, stay safe, and wear a mask, please. Please.